You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Revelation chapter 3 verse 7, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but a little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we have just collectively worshiped together about your provision and how that over and over and over again, you have blessed us far beyond anything that we could have ever imagined. And Father, we recognize that we didn't deserve any of that. Father, as we look back across our life, whether we've been a follower of yours for just a few years or for many years, one thing that is consistent through every one of those days, every one of those moments, every one of those valleys, every one of those hills, every one of those mountains, and every one of those deep, dark valleys, one thing that is consistent You have been right there. You have provided over and over again. So, Father, before we even ask you for anything else, we just want you to know that we are grateful, deeply grateful, for every moment in our life that you were right there. And, Father, I would imagine that there's some here today that find themselves in a deep valley, that find themselves facing some difficult circumstances. And Father, I pray that they would know that you are right there with them. That even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort us. You are a great shepherd because you never abandon your sheep. You're a great father because you never turn your back on your kids. And Father, we thank you for the relationship that we can have with you through what Christ did on the cross and in the empty tomb. Father, guide us in your word this morning. We gave you praise for it. And Father, may we see the open door that you have set before us that no one can shut. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You've probably heard stories of, of missionaries who've gone overseas and gone to really difficult places to share the gospel. And if you've read their stories, maybe you were like me, you look at them and you go, man, what an incredible, powerful Christian witness. And I, I begin to think that, man, maybe they've, they've got something I don't have. Uh, I think there's a tendency to, when you see people face incredible odds, when you see them go into places that are hard and endure for many years, even generations, with the gospel, that you, you tend to think that, that God's given them a little bit more than maybe He's given the rest of us, and well, that's not true. It's not true at all. That every one of us has been given the fullness of Christ, the Holy Spirit living inside of us, and we have a mission that we've been called to accomplish in our lifetime. I read about different missionaries because I love to read their stories, and one I want to share with you this morning is a guy by the name of Adeniram Judson. I always get his first name wrong, but he's pronounce it different ways, but that's how I've always pronounced it, as Adeniram Judson. He got the call from God in 1812 to go to Burma, which of course is today Myanmar. Now in 1800s, you can imagine the incredible task of leaving 
America at that point in history, boarding a ship for a many long week journey across the ocean to a land where you cannot speak the language, you have no technology to help you, you have no Bible that you can hand to these people that is in their language, but yet Adeniram and his wife took this long journey to Burma at a time where very, very few missionaries, as a matter of fact, they were one of the first to leave America to go specifically somewhere else to live their life among an indigenous people and share the gospel with them. Well, as you can imagine, there was all kinds of hardships connected to that, not just the journey, but when they got there. Even to this day, if you make the commitment to go to a foreign land, to be a missionary in that place, you're going to have some of the same struggles. The food's different. The culture's different. <coughs> the, the sicknesses that are there that you've never been confronted with. The, the lifestyle that you're going to be living while you're there. Everything changes. And especially in Judson's day where there was no way to stay in touch with your family other by, other by writing letters that would take weeks and weeks to get back to their family. So it was a, a step of faith through an open door that Christ had called him to. Once he enters the mission field that he was intending to go to, he begins to learn the language and share the gospel the best way he can while at the same time learning the local language Eventually, he would begin to see fruit from his ministry. There would be people who would come to faith in Christ, and, and then he would take on the task of translating the New Testament into the local language, which was just an incredible task in and of itself. But there was also a lot of pain and a lot of difficulty and a lot of trouble. Eventually, after he's been there for a few years, a war would break out between Burma and England. And, and the, the king or the emperor over the region that this missionary is in would declare that all Westerners must be spies, and therefore they must be arrested. So Judson was arrested and thrown into a prison. He would stay there for 19 months. He would almost starve to death, and if it wasn't for his wife sneaking food into the prison, he would have starved to death in this prison. After 19 months, he's finally released, and he goes right back to the work that God had called him to do. Which, by the way, when you read the lives of these missionaries, you see plenty of opportunity for them to quit. As a matter of fact, I can look at their lives and go, yep, that's, that's the place I would have quit right there. That's the place I would have thrown in the towel. But the 19 months in prison, that's just the beginning of the suffering because after he gets out, all three of his children would die from diseases that they would catch while on the mission field. Now, you have to understand that anyone would have said, you know, uh, it's probably time for you to go back to the States. I mean, your, your kids are sick. You don't have access to health care here that you would have back in the say, so certainly God wouldn't want you to stay, right? All three of his children would pass away at a young age because of the calling that God had on his life. Not only that, but then his wife would get very ill. She would leave the mission field, come back to the States, and would stay here for two years just trying to get well, only to return back to the mission field, still not completely well, but thinking that she was past this disease that she caught, only to get back on the mission field and then die in Burma with her husband. Now, of course, at this point, at this point you would imagine that, that Adeniram would begin to think, Lord, why have you called me to such a place that has caused so much destruction in my family? And yet, he didn't leave the mission field. But he would enter into a place of deep depression. And for a time, he would leave and go deep into the jungle, and he would build a hut there, just trying to process all that was going on and, and whether he should stay or whether he should go. So on the one hand, he's got this calling on, on his life from God that, that he's embraced to see people come to faith in Christ that had never heard the name of Jesus, and he was fully committed to that. But on the other hand, he's lost his entire family. And at one point in his life, he's almost lost the will himself to live. We read where he, spending all this time out in the jungle alone, the, 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 the townspeople that he had reached had, were convinced that he would never come back out of that jungle because where he was at, there were tigers living in the wild, and they knew that he was going to be consumed. And while he was there, he would pray, and he would fast, and he would seek God's direction on whether this open door was still an open door for him after all that he had suffered. 
He gets so low, and I want you to imagine this. He gets so low and so down that he goes out behind his hut and he digs a grave, his grave. Can you imagine digging your own grave? He's convinced that he's going to die right there in that hut. God gets a hold of his heart, heals his heart, brings him out of the jungle, and he goes right back to the missionary work that God had called him to. He even ends up remarrying Two more times, he lost three wives on the mission field. And yet, to this very day, in Myanmar, there are copies, translations of the Bible that he translated that are still being used today, and people are still hearing the gospel because of his sacrifice to the Lord that he did. So when we look at his life and when we hear stories like this, we think, my goodness, that's like super Christianity, right? He's like the super Christian. He's got like the, the S and C on his chest with a cape. But the reality is, is the open door that has been set before Adeniram Judson in his day in 1812 is the same open door that has been set in front of this church and you as an individual Christian. Your calling may be different. What God has asked you to do in, in the process of engaging in the mission that Christ has given us, it may look different in your life than it did in his, but make no mistake about it, the calling is exactly the same. So today we look at the church at Philadelphia. This is the sixth church. We've got one more next week, the church at Laodicea. As we've looked at these churches, we've been able to compare and contrast the things that they were dealing with. Some of the churches, Jesus points out, you've got a problem and this needs to be addressed. Church at Ephesus had lost its love. Church at Thyatira had welcomed in a false teacher and was not doing anything about it. The church at Sardis, this church, had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead, they were asleep, and they had left the mission that Christ had given them. The church at Sardis had attempted to live both in the world, with the world, but at the same time, follow Jesus. And Jesus says, that's not possible. You're either going to follow me or you're going to follow the world. There is no in-between. And the church at Sardis had given up on following Jesus. The church at Philadelphia is going to be exactly the opposite of the church at Sardis. This church was 25 miles to the southeast of Sardis on a high plateau. But the interesting thing about the church at Philadelphia and the city of Philadelphia is this church and this community had suffered greatly through earthquakes. The this particular region from Philadelphia all the way up to Sardis, this particular area was prone for earthquakes. So people were constantly living in fear. People would lose everything only to have to rebuild. And this church, we don't know who started it, in this area of Philadelphia was in a particular area of great influence. There were major Roman roads that ran through Philadelphia. Philadelphia was very wealthy. There was a large amount of Jewish people that called Philadelphia home. But then in the refines of this city, there is a church that nobody knew. There's a church that had no reputation. Matter of fact, the, the church that was there, as we will see, nobody was talking about this church. Nobody was impressed with this church. And in fact, from the outside view, from a Roman eye or a Jewish eye, this church was insignificant. Maybe over the last several months, you've been reading articles maybe online, social media. And maybe the, the heading of the article is something like this. It says, the American church is dying. Or, or maybe you read the article from the Christian Post that said that by 2045, the number of Christians in America will be less than 50%. Maybe you read that article. And the whole idea is, is that as our culture becomes, well, more up-to-date, it is leaving behind the old Puritan ideas of the past. And that includes the local church. I can't tell you how many articles that y'all, that folks in the church and other folks that I, that I know have sent to me through text or email say, hey, Pastor, have you seen this? And they're all saying the same thing. That the church doesn't matter. That the church, what it used to be, it is no longer. And quite frankly, why waste your time? The church at Philadelphia was thought of as being irrelevant. But for those who remain faithful, 
For those who remain faithful to what Christ has called the church to be, and what, call, what Christ has called Christians, followers to be, what are we to do in a culture and age that continually says that what you value is meaningless? Let's take a look at the church at Philadelphia, and let's see what Jesus has to say to this church. Just like with the other letters, Jesus introduces himself. He says, to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. So right here, just like we've seen with the other letters, we see aspects of John's vision in chapter 1. But what's being said to the church of Philadelphia by Jesus is one of the strongest statements by Jesus to a group of people about his true identity as we find anywhere in the New Testament. So on the one hand, Jesus says, I am holy. I am the holy one. What does he mean by that? Jesus is telling the church about his perfection, that he is perfectly and completely righteous, that there is no sin or darkness within him, that there is nothing that he does that is outside the will of God, that he is absolutely, completely perfect in all of his actions, in all of his thoughts, in all that he does, he is perfect. Now right there, we have a statement of Jesus himself. This is Jesus speaking, clearly indicating that he is God in the flesh. Now we know, we know that if you've been in the church any time at all, we know that Jesus is both God and man. But right here in front of us, we have one of the clearest statements of Jesus making that claim about himself that you can find anywhere in the New Testament. Not only does he say that he is righteous and perfect, he also says he is the true one. If you go back to John chapter 14, verse 6, you know the verse, Jesus makes this statement. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. He says, I am the way, I am the truth. No one comes unto the Father except through me. Jesus says here to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I am the true one. In other words, what you hear from me, what I tell you about reality, you can bank on it is the truth. Now what Jesus says here are two attributes that are also connected to God himself. That God is both holy and God is true. Jesus says that he is holy and he is true. But he also says that he holds some keys. He says, I have the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one will open. If you go back to Revelation chapter 1, that vision that John had, John mentions some keys, the keys of death and hell. If you go back to Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was walking with his disciples, one day he turns around and he asks the disciples, he said, what does the crowd say about me as far as my identity? And the disciples spoke to him and said, well, you know, some of them say you're, you're Elijah, you're, you're, a, you're the Old Testament prophet who's come back. And then Jesus says to his disciples, well, who do you say that I am? You, you guys have been walking with me for a while now. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps up and he says, Jesus, you are the Christ. In other words, the anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. And Jesus, good job, Peter. Well done, man. Upon this confession, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then later on he says, I have the keys of death and hell. What does is, what is someone who has keys, like if you think of a, a prison guard who has the keys, what does he have? He has power. He has the ability to open or to close. Jesus says not only is he perfect and not only is he true, but he has the power to determine the mission of the church. He has the power to determine the purpose of your life. He has the power to determine what is open and what is closed. And whatever he opens, no one can close, and whatever he closes, no one can open. So Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, he says, I want you to understand who I am. I want you to understand that, that I am your king. Now look at what he says next. He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. So fly, flowing right out of his statement about his identity, he says, Church at Philadelphia, I've opened a door for you. So what is the open door? Well, look at what else he says about this church. He says, I know your works, and here, here's some things that I know about you. I know that you have but a little power. Unlike the church at Sardis that was big on reputation and low on reality, 
Jesus told that church, he says, I know that you have a reputation of being alive, but I know that you're really dead. The church of Philadelphia was exactly the opposite. They had no reputation. They, they, no one was talking about this little church. They were insignificant. The world at large was moving on. And, and here's this little fellowship, probably a very few people. They had no money. They had no building. They had very little to point to. But Jesus says, he says, I know that you have but a little power. But the power they had, the resources they had, guess what they did? They stayed on mission. Notice what he says. He says, yet, in spite of the fact that you have very little power, in spite of the fact that you have very little influence, in spite of the fact that nobody's talking about you, you have kept my word. You have been faithful to what I've told you to do. You have been faithful in the mission. You've been obedient. And not only that, you have not denied my name. Remember Sardis, the members of the church at Sardis wanted to keep their name on the local role at the synagogue. Why? So that they wouldn't have to suffer persecution. They were in fact ashamed of the name of Jesus. I tell you what, here's a challenge for you this week. If you, if you work at a, a job site or you work at a school or you work where you're around a lot of people who maybe are not followers of Jesus. I tell you what, this week when you're having a conversation, maybe you're in a break room, I want you to just bring the name of Jesus up in that setting and see what happens. I have found that you can talk about God all day. You can bring up God. Nobody's threatened by God. It can be any number of gods, right? But when you bring up the name of Jesus... It can get really awkward really quick. Why is that? It's because this Jesus, not only is he perfect and not only is he true, but he holds a set of keys and he opens and he closes. He has a will for your life. He has an open door in front of you. Have you ever wondered what that is? Have you ever wrestled with what is God's will for my life? That's a big, heavy question, isn't it? Some of you in your 20s, you've wrestled with that. Some of you in your 40s, you're wrestling with that. Some of you in your 70s, you're wrestling with that still. What is God's will for my life? What is this open door? For the church at Philadelphia, the open door was the great commission work that had been given to this church. He says, I am the true one. I am the holy one. I am the one who opens and shuts. And I know, church, that you only have a little power, you only have a little influence, but I also know that you've not denied my name, and I also know that you've been obedient. In other words, this church had put its trust in Jesus. And you know what I have found out in all these years of ministry and trying to follow Jesus? That every person in this room and every person watching online, you've put your trust in something. You have. For those of you watching online this morning, you, you may be out there, you may be never stepped foot in a church in your life. And you just happened to tune in this morning. Or maybe, maybe you come this morning because you were coerced into coming, but deep down inside, you're not even sure that God is real. So you might say, you might say, like the majority of our culture now, that I am a nun, not an N-U-N, but an N-O-N-E. Nun, I have no faith. I have no religion. I don't believe in organized religion. I don't believe in a real God. I don't believe in a Jesus or a Allah or a Buddha or... Any other? So, so you, would, you would make the claim that you have no faith in anything particular. And I would argue exactly the opposite. I would argue that you have got your faith in something. Maybe it's money. Power. Maybe, maybe you want to be the next big influencer online. Maybe you want your name up in lights and that's what you're pursuing. Or maybe you want the big title at work. You're, you're working on a third degree. You're working on your PhD for the sole purpose of getting the title so people will pat you on the back. You see, you are actually trusting in something. I'm convinced that every single human being is pursuing something greater than themselves. The problem is what we have defined as greater. Maybe it's money, maybe it's power, maybe it's fame. Maybe it's simply you're pursuing to be loved by somebody. 
So you've been dating and dating and dating, looking for just the right one, and you're, you have your whole life wrapped up in some other human being that's supposed to fulfill you. This church has put his faith in Jesus. But I know that there are lesser things that you can put your faith in. And I also know that I spent part of my life doing exactly that. And I know that Satan hasn't changed his tactics. That there are plenty of things put in front of your life to put your trust in. But Jesus says to the church, I am the true one. I am the righteous one. I am the honest one. I am the one who has truth. And I'm the one who opens a door of purpose for your life. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? Well, let me ask you a question. Let me, let, me, let me flip it around a little bit. Whatever it is that you're putting your trust in, will it be able to take care of you when you walk through the valley? Will the money be there when the doctor says there's nothing else we can do? Will the money suffice in that moment? Will, will all of the people that you've, you've got as friends online and you've been pursuing with tenacity to get more views and more clicks and more likes and more thumbs up, are any of those people going to be able to be there for you when your life goes off the cliff? Whether that be medical, whether that be your marriage, whether that be your relationships, will that be able to carry you through? You need to be asking that question, folks. Because in essence, you're living your life for that thing. And Jesus says, I'm the only one who is true, I'm the only one who is righteous, and I'm the only one who can open the door for you and show you what purpose looks like. All the while, you're giving your life to something less than. This church, he says, I see you have a little power, but yet in, in that lack of power and lack of influence, you've obeyed me and you've not denied me. Behold, verse 9, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews but are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. When I, when I was studying that this week and looking at that, I, I began to think about what, what is it going to be like in that moment? Because what Jesus is saying in this letter, he says in multiple places, not only in Revelation, but also Paul speaks of this that there's going to be a day and time in which every single living human being, both who've lived in the past and living in that present moment, all of those people are going to be gathered together. Those who are atheistic, those who hate the cause of Christ. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to have to bow the knee and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is exactly who he says he is. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, think about all the hatred and the anger that's being thrown have followers of Jesus right now, not just in our own country, but I'm talking about around the world. I'm talking about people like emperors, leaders like the emperor leader over China who is destroying every church that he can find, throwing Christians into prison everywhere he can find them. And no matter how hard he works and no matter how hard he is pushing to snuff Christianity out of his country, the more he does it, the more it spreads. Did you know that there are more Christians today in China than there's ever been in the history of that country? ever. It is growing like wildfire. The more he pushes, the more pressure he puts on it, the more it spreads. Jesus says, I know what your purpose for life is. I also know that one day all of those who hate you for what you stand for, they're all going to bow one day at Jesus' feet and they're going to acknowledge that the church was in fact the people of God. The very thing that nobody right now is doing, the very thing that no one even wants to acknowledge is that the church is some kind of supernatural entity. It's, it's sustained attack after attack. It has grown all over the world in places you would never expect it to grow. There's something about the church of Jesus Christ that no one wants to admit, but will one day. That the church is, are the people of God. Sorry for my bad English there. That the church makes up the people of God and that God loves the church. Not only that, he says, verse 11, I'm sorry, verse 10. He said, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. 
So as we move deeper into this book, let me give you a little bit of framework. So next week we'll be in the church at Laodicea. We're going to wrap up the seven churches, and then those next two chapters, four and five, we're going to look at the throne room of heaven, and John is called up in the spirit and is literally in the very throne room, the presence of God, and he describes to us what he sees there. Then when we get in chapter six, we're going to move into a new segment of the book of Revelation, and that is going to be focused on a coming period of judgment that is going to be poured out upon this earth. So all through the New Testament, we see over and over again where Jesus says, or Paul says, or John says, that there will be retribution, that God knows everything that's been done wrong, and if people fail to repent and be part of the kingdom of God, his king, Jesus, will return, and he is going to make all wrong things right. And in that process, there is going to be a period of time where judgment is going to be poured out on this earth and everyone who lives here. And what's going to happen is unlike anything that has ever been seen ever in the history of humanity. You think about how bad 9-11 was. You think about how bad the war on terror has been. You think about World War, World war I, World War II, Vietnam War, the Korean conflict. You put all that together. And then you bring into it the conflicts from other lands, put it all together, and all the horrific pain, death, and destruction that happened in all of that, that is not a drop in the bucket compared to what's coming. And we're going to take a look at that in the weeks ahead. But to the church of Philadelphia, he makes a promise. He says, because you have endured. And that endurance indicates that you are truly my people then I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, I am going to keep you from this time of judgment. Now at this point, we got to kind of break that down a little bit, and we need to talk a little bit about what is Jesus actually saying at this moment. Well, to do that, we need to back up into John 14. I've got three texts that we need to look at. Let's start with John 14. So if you don't mind... Turn over there. It's a very familiar text. And I've got three sets of verses I want to read to you to kind of build towards what Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia for the whole purpose of not only giving that church hope, but giving us hope as well. John 14, verse 1, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So what is Jesus saying? Maybe this text is familiar to you because it was read at a funeral that you attended for someone that you loved. And oftentimes this text is used in that context, but I want to give you a kind of another perspective on it. Jesus is saying to his disciples that he's going to go back to the Father. They're going to witness that not long from where this text was written. At this point, Jesus has still got to be crucified, resurrected, and then he's going to ascend back to the Father. He says to them in a promise that when he goes away and when they see it, that he is going to prepare a place. And, and I know the King James Version says many mansions. The, the actual interpretation of that Greek is many rooms, which basically means there's going to be plenty of space for us to live together in the presence of God. But then Jesus says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you unto myself so that where I am, you will be with me. Now, oftentimes when we think of this text, we think about it in the aspect of when we come to our time to die, when we, when we come to the end of the road, we look at this text and we understand that Jesus is saying that we've got another place, that we have a life beyond this life. But not only that, that in those dying moments, Jesus has promised to be there with us, to gather us to himself, and to usher us into this place of beauty and uh, glory and God's presence. That's an incredible, incredible thought, isn't it? But Jesus is also saying in the corporate aspect of the church that I'm going to come to you, church, and I'm going to take you out of this world, and I will have you with me in this place that I have prepared. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15. Paul writing to the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth had some serious confusion about what happens at death. 
Paul is trying to clear some of that up, and he, and he bases it in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. He starts out talking about the gospel, and then he moves into that the resurrection is true, and if it's not true, then everything that we're doing, every, every bit of aspect of our faith is absolutely null and void if Jesus didn't resurrect. In verse 50, he says this. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This body that you're indwelling right now, you, you have a soul spirit and you have a body. This body is corrupt. That's why it's going to go back to the ground, decay and go back to dust. Paul says it can't inherit the kingdom of God. In fact, it can't even stand to be in the presence of God. So, so the body is going to be dealt with and it's going to go back to the soul. He says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, a broken down body that's breaking down can't inherit something that is perfect as heaven and what Jesus has prepared for us. So then he goes on and he says this, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. He's not talking about the nap you're getting ready to take right now. He's talking about death. In the New Testament, we often see sleep referring to death. But when God talks about sleep and death, he's not talking about a soul sleep. In other words, your loved one that, that passed away, they're not in a grave. You've you got to understand this. Listen, folks, there is no hope for us at all if all that happens to us when we die is we go into a grave and that's the end. No. The Bible says, Paul says, to be absent from the bodies to be what? To be absent from the bodies to be what? So we're not in the grave. Paul says, we shall not all sleep. In other words, some of us are not going to have to go to the grave. How could that be? But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So Paul takes what Jesus said in John 14, and he gives us some details as to what's going to happen. And here's what he says. He says there's going to be a moment, there's going to be a generation of people who won't have to go into the grave, but will be transformed and will be gathered up with Jesus. Well, that's intriguing, isn't it? I want to know more about that. And he says that in that moment we'll be changed instantaneously. But before we're changed, those who've died in Christ, they're going to be raised. Whoa, now I really want to know more. Well, turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And Paul takes us a little deeper. So again, Jesus is speaking to the church at Philadelphia, and he says to the church at Philadelphia, I am going to keep you from this season of judgment that is coming upon the world. In other words, church, I am going to keep you. John says, through John 14, Jesus says, I've gone to prepare a place. I will come back, receive you unto myself. Paul says to the church at Corinth, hey, there's going to be a generation that doesn't see death. It'll be taken up. A trumpet will be involved. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. The church at Thessalonica was a little bit confused about what had happened to the ones who had died. They, they, were, they were confused, and so Paul writes this letter to help clear some of this up, and in verse 13, he says this. He says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who've died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Paul says, you believe the gospel. The gospel says that Jesus died and he rose again. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Oh, wait a minute. We just got more information here. So your loved one that has died is not in the grave. That's what he just said to the church of Thessalonica. He says that that soul spirit that is separated from that body has went to be living with Jesus in heaven. All those who've put their faith in Jesus who have died are there with him now in that place that he's prepared. But in this moment, in this cataclysmic event, Jesus is going to bring with him those who've already died. Their soul spirit is going to come with him down to the clouds. Jesus is going to issue a command. The dead in Christ, those bodies that have rotted in the grave, are going to burst forth brand new bodies. That body and that soul that is with Jesus are going to be reunited. He says that a trumpet 
is going to precede this. He says that those graves are going to burst forth. He says right here, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who fall asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. This is coming from Jesus. This is coming from Paul. And together they are saying the same thing. That there's going to be an event, cataclysmic event. A trumpet will sound. Graves will burst forth. And then those who are remained, who are in Christ, will be caught up. This is where we get the word rapture. Taken up to meet Jesus in the clouds. And he says right here, so shall we ever be with the Lord. Go back to Revelation. So here's where we are. Jesus says the church of Philadelphia, continue to endure as evidence of your faith in me. And I'm going to give you a promise that you will never see the tribulation time. You will never have to go through it. I'm going to take you out before that. Of course, that church died off, but the church of Jesus Christ lives on, and we all are still waiting expectantly for that trumpet to sound. I know what you may be thinking at this point. Well, you know, Pastor, I've been hearing that stuff taught for years and years and years and years. Heard it when I was a kid. I've heard it as an adult. And quite frankly, maybe if you're honest, you might say, I'm not so sure about that anymore. Can we agree on something? Maybe, maybe, Maybe you're having some hard time struggling with this whole cataclysmic event, but Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia, he's going, to take, he's going to protect them. They're not going to have to go through that. He's saying to this church, he says, church, you're not going to have to go through that tribulation time. I'm going to take you out. But let me, let me just ask you this. Are we closer to that event now than we were when Jesus wrote to the church at Philadelphia? You better believe we are. Did you know that not only are we closer to it than when John heard it to the church at Philadelphia. But we have signs and indications all over this planet that indicate we're right on the precipice. Could it be that this generation, the people I'm looking at, the ones that are watching online, could it be that it's this generation that'll never see the grave? If you have your faith in Jesus, that you get to experience what Paul described, could it be that we're the ones? Should we be living in that reality? That's what he's saying to the church of Philadelphia. Live in the reality that I may come soon. Live in the reality that I may come, well, at any point. Listen to what he says. He says, verse 11, I am coming soon. Well, it's been over 2,000 years. The Bible teaches us that 1,000 years to God is like a... In other words, this is like yesterday. When Jesus was saying this to the church at Philadelphia, in the economy of God. A thousand years is a day, a day is like a thousand years. In other words, it still applies. That the church of Jesus Christ has been given an open door. That open door is the great commission work that we've been called to. This church is being faithful to it, but Jesus puts all the cards on the table and says to this church, you continue to endure Because I'm going to come back, and I'm going to wrap this thing up, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess, and you endure the hardship, because I'm the one who holds the keys, and I'm the one who opens, and I'm the one who closes. It's not your president. It's not your senate. It's not your king. He doesn't get to determine the mission. He doesn't get to determine the purpose of your life. I have the keys. I get to determine what your life is about. Not only that, I'm going to gift you to do it. I'm going to empower you to do it. And lo, I will be with you as you do it. He says to the church at Philadelphia, he says to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. In other words, God is not ashamed of the church that is on mission for him. God is not ashamed to call that church his children. God is not ashamed to put his name on that church. God is not ashamed to walk with that church and empower that church and open the door to that church to be on mission. 
That's what he's saying. The, the Jews in Philadelphia, just like Sardis, they had their synagogue, and they had their names written down there, and they were very proud of that. This church is not known by anyone. No one thinks it has anything significant to offer, but yet when Jesus sees this church, he says, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, what power you have, because I've set an open door before you. Jesus has set an open door before this church. You know what that open door is? Robinson County. 70% of which have no faith in Jesus. So we are here for such a time as this. You are here for such a time as this. You are part of this congregation for such a time as this. God has set an open door before us. What is that open door? To proclaim the gospel, the same gospel that Philadelphia was proclaiming. We are not here to build a reputation. We're not here to make the whole community think we're all that in a bag of chips. We are here to walk through the open door that Jesus has put before us to be on mission together. That's why we're here. A great many of church, great many churches across our land have forgotten that. So just a few things to consider about the church of Philadelphia. First thing I want you to consider is that this church was persistent in great commission work. We've got to be persistent in great commission work. We, we can't be about anything else. We, we simply can't be. Our morning worship, small groups, what we're doing as a church, we've got to be focused on the open door that Jesus has put in front of us. We've got to be persistent. We can't be satisfied with lesser things. We have an open door that no one can close. Yes, we may go out and we may, we may walk the street this afternoon and we may have somebody get upset with us because we ask them if we could pray for them. We've had that happen. But when we go out on Sundays, when we go out, we go out knowing that Jesus has opened a door and nobody's going to close that door. So we go in the power of Christ with a smile on our face to love people right where they are, regardless of how they accept it. So we've got to be persistent. You've got to be persistent. Your purpose in life is connected to the command that Jesus gave the church before he left. Second, as we are persistent in great commission work, we've also got to be true to the name of Jesus. And the reason those two work together very tightly is because the more you persist in telling people about Jesus, the more pushback you're going to get to undermine the name of Jesus. As I said earlier, when you bring the name of Jesus up, it's not always welcomed. And there may be pressure to make Jesus a little bit more accessible. Then we move away from the historical Jesus and the things that he said, and we put words in his mouth that he never said to make him a little bit more palatable to the nations. It's happening. The things that I hear come down through social media about what Jesus says about any particular thing is all, is all but atrocious what people are saying. They're putting words in the mouth of God that God never said only for the purpose of acceptance of one particular lifestyle or another. That is dangerous territory, folks. If you're going to speak on behalf of God, you better get it right. And there's a whole lot of people getting it wrong. Be true to the name of Jesus. The local church may not have a whole lot of influence. It may be viewed as a relic of the past, but the door that has been opened in front of us, no man will shut. Third, you need to be filled with hope because the church will be vindicated one day. Why is it that more people don't just give up on the church, especially as the more pressure comes? Well, we can't give up. Where else am I going to go, right? What else am I going to replace this mission and open door with? What else is there out there that can change a life? What else is there that's being offered by our community that can change a person from the inside out? Have you found anything? Have you found anything like the gospel that can take a human being who is broken and make them brand new? Nothing. And the church's mandate is to share that good news with everyone 
understanding that one day, and unfortunately for many, it will be too late, they will recognize the church for what it is. It is the family of God doing the work of God on this planet. And then finally, be vigilant. Jesus is going to return. Look, I know, I know there are people, I even have professors who believe that the church will actually go through the tribulation. I understand that. I respect their positions on that. Maybe you hold that position. That's fine. But where I'm at and what I see in the New Testament, what I see, I see Jesus taking us out of this world in advance of that tribulation. We'll talk more about that in the weeks ahead. But whether you believe the church is going to go through the tribulation or whether you believe the rapture is going to occur, either way, we're going to be facing Jesus one day. He's going to come back. And I think it brings great hope. It brings great hope to my heart that it could very well be my lifetime that I get to see that. So we end where we started, and that is, where do you have your trust? When the time of trouble comes upon this planet, it's going to divide up what you really believe and what you don't believe. Where do you have your trust? What are you putting your faith in? Because you're putting it somewhere are you putting it in the one who is true, the one who is right, and the one who holds the keys and the purpose for your life? If you're putting it anywhere else, you're never going to find those three things, ever. So today, in this last moments of commitment, I want you to really consider, where do you really have your trust this morning? Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and grace. And Father, maybe it's in this moment we need to confess that we've been putting our trust everywhere but in you. It may be that we need to confess in this moment to you that we've made our life about everything else but you. So the good news has not really been all that great news because we keep looking for satisfaction, for healing in places that can never provide it. And maybe, Father, for the first time ever in our life, we confess that we've been following a false God all these years. Father, I pray that you would help us to see the truth. Help us to also see the open door. The open door that you have put before us that no one can close. The purpose of our life, where we find meaning and love and truth and reality. So Father, in this moment of commitment, Speak to our hearts. Father, we are listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together in this worship. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, Hyde Park Baptist.